The little ship keeled over in the black, stormy waters. The heavy waves crashed against it again and again. Already water was beginning to partially fill the whole of the ship. The helmsman frantically fought to keep the ship into the wind, but the sluggish response to the rudder indicated that unless the storm soon abated, that the mighty ocean waves would gather another victim. Nervously, the captain of the ship paced up and down, and as he did so, he watched the frantic efforts of his crew, and he thought about his crew, a motley lot from every nation, and he listened as they cried out in their work, each to their individual gods, to save them and their ship. And as he watched, he thought about one who was missing, a strange Israelite passenger that he had taken on board. And it occurred to him that it was rumored that the Israelites had a mighty God, a God of wonders and miracles. And he thought he would search out the Israelite. He made his way down the slippery deck and into the lower parts of the ship. And there, as he went along the passageways, he suddenly found this strange Jewish passenger asleep in the sides of the ship. He reached out and he grabbed him and he shook him and he said, Awake, arise and call upon thy God, lest we perish. And then together they made their way back topside. And as they came topside, the crew had abandoned their efforts to salvage the ship now, were gathered in the forecastle in a little shelter there, and were casting lots to see for whose cause this terrible storm had come upon them. As the captain and the Israelite approached, all action ceased, every eye turned to the Israelite. The man with the cup with the lots in it suddenly handed it to the Israelite, and he said, Cast thy lot. Sullenly, the Israelite rolled the lots around in his hand, in the little cup, and as he did so, he reflected on how he happened to be in this situation. He thought how only a few days before he had been an honored statesman in his own country, and then the voice of his God had come to him with this message, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for its wickedness has come up before me. As he reflected how, instead of going to Nineveh, he had sought to flee the voice, and he had taken a ship from Joppa to the uttermost part of the world, Tarshish. Suddenly, one of the men cried out, Quit stalling. Cast your lot, Israelite. His hand flashed out. The lot fell. He didn't need to look. He knew it had landed on him. They gathered around him. Who are you? What are you doing here? What's this all about? And slowly, slowly he unfolded his story about the fact that he was running from his God. They said, what must we do? He said, cast me overboard and the storm will abate. It's for my cause that this has come. But they were reluctant to do this. And they rode hard. But they were unable 
to make any progress as the storm only worsened. And finally, with a prayer, saying, Thou, Lord, hast done what seemeth unto thee good to do, they took the Israelite up and cast him over the side, and immediately there was a calm. The sailors praised the God of the Israelite and then made their way on the shore to tell the amazing story. Meanwhile, Jonah, for that was his name, sunk beneath the waves. And as he did so, suddenly there was a horrible shape right beside him. Then a swirl of water, intense heat, slimy walls. And he began to realize that he was inside the belly of a great fish and still alive. And now humbled and penitent, he cried out to God, his God, to save him. The ship cast him up on the land. And let's pause at that point in our story to reflect on the background of this. Perhaps as we have touched on the story, you have been a little incredulous, incredulous. Perhaps the story has seemed unreal to you. Perhaps you feel that this is not really historical. It's a legend, perhaps. It's a lesson with a moral, but not really historical. Was Jonah a historical person? Well, we read in the book of Second Kings, in the 14th chapter, in the 25th verse, that Jeroboam, the king, did certain things. He enlarged the borders of his nation. He made certain conquests. And that this was done in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jonah. In other words, the Old Testament, uh, in another place, looks upon him as having given prophecies and these prophecies having been fulfilled looks upon him as a historical person. Again, uh, assuming that he was historical, can we believe what the book says about him? What's the problem here? Well, of course, the problem is that he was swallowed by a great fish and survived. And this seems incredulous. And so men have questioned whether we should take it literally. And yet, every Christian is committed to the supernatural. Why go into the Bible and throw out one miracle and accept another? You cannot be a Christian and not accept the miraculous. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of Christianity. It's inconsistent to accept one and thrust another out. And yet, we really do not even need to think of this as being a miracle. This is not without parallel. We might want to think of it as special providence. And we're told that God prepared a fish, a special built fish, perhaps. The Daily News, uh, the Daily Mail, a newspaper in London, 
December the 14th, 1928, carried the account of a Mr. G.H. Hinn, H-E-N-N, and some associates who had gone into the belly of a whale that had washed up on the shores of England. He and 12 men had walked inside and stood within the belly of the whale in something that comprised a sizable room. Again, uh, Sir Francis Fox, who was an engineer and ran a whaling station for uh, quite a number of years, in his book, 63 Years of Engineering, tells on one occasion how they recovered a whale and found within the belly of the whale the skeleton of a 16-foot shark. Again, he describes the amazing account of a man by the name of James Bartley who, on February of 1891, on the ship the Star of the East, a whaling ship, was lost at sea. The the ship spied a sperm whale. They put over two boats. One of the boats harpooned the whale. The other boat drew near to help take her. But the whale lashed the second ship with its tail. Two men were thrown overboard and disappeared. One of these men was James Bartley. They assumed that he had been drowned. The whale was taken pulled alongside the ship. All night they worked on cutting the blubber off, and when they had finished this, they drew the belly of the whale now aboard the ship and proceeded to cut it up. As they did so, they noticed signs of life, and upon opening the whale's belly, they found therein James Bartley still alive but unconscious. They revived him by giving him baths with salt water, He was out of his mind for a period of two weeks. At the end of two weeks, he recovered and resumed his work. He said that he did not faint from lack of air, that he could have survived until he had starved to death. He fainted from fear. So this is not without parallel. There's no reason why we shouldn't accept it as a historical event. Of course, the clinching argument for the Christian is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ refers to it. We read in the 12th chapter of Matthew how Christ said to those who asked him a sign, There shall no sign be given, this adulterous and sinful generation, except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, and the word in the Greek is great fish, uh, as he was in the belly of the great fish, uh, even so shall the Son of Man be in the earth three days and three nights. Then he goes on to speak of the fact that the men of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah would condemn those people that he was speaking to in the final judgment because they repented and a greater than Jonah was here and yet these people were not repenting. In other words, Christ apparently thought of individuals who had repented at the preaching of Jonah being present at the final judgment, real persons who would condemn these persons he was speaking to. There's no way to get around the fact that Jesus Christ accepted this as a literal event. For the Christian, that settles it. When you look at the story and examine it, 
now that we've somewhat cleared the air, you find three movements. You find, first of all, Jonah running from God, then you find him running with God, then you find him running ahead of God. First, running from God, as we read in the first three verses of the first chapter, now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Why did he flee? Well, obviously because he didn't want to go. But if he didn't want to go, why didn't he just stay where he was? Because of the voice, that voice in his ear saying, Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh, trying to get away from the voice. He connected the voice with the land. Oh, I don't think uh, that these Old Testament prophets didn't understand that you couldn't get away from God. It was David who wrote, Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I go to the othermost parts of the earth, thou art there. If I go to heaven, thou art there. If I descend to Sheol, thou art there. Even there thy hand shall find me. They knew that he was the God of the whole earth. But Jonah connected the voice and its intensity with the land. And he thought if he could flee, that maybe the voice would weaken. That sound foolish? That sound unrealistic? I heard only several weeks ago at our men's luncheon uh, a man who's now a minister tell uh, the voice says it came to him as a businessman to go preach. Go preach. It came so strong that on Mondays and Tuesdays he'd weep through his work. He'd cling to a tree out here towards Aniston and wore the bark off it, weeping as the voice kept coming. And then he moved to Huntsville and he really thought, now that I'm away from my church, And that preacher, the voice will ease up. (laughs) Is it unrealistic to think that we can silence the voice? I see it happen every day in a sense as we speak to someone and, and they are under conviction. And they just don't come back to church. You think the voice will stop. Or maybe we give them a book to read, and they read just enough for it to upset them. Then they put it down. There is no escape from God. He's been depicted by Francis Thompson as the hound of heaven, and what a wonderful picture it is. Came on the following feet, and a voice above their beat, Naught shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. The hound of heaven, chasing down, the voice continuing. And there is no fleeing from his spirit. And one day our conscience shall arise and say, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? How much better to say, God speak for thy servant, hear it now. But how blessed that he does pursue. How thankful we should be for the storms of life. The storm that is the evidence of God following after, not letting us go, working to bring us back to him or into his will. The storms that have worked to break us down so that we turn penitent and humble now with a listening ear. Jonah running from God, and then we find Jonah running with God as the second time God speaks, he listens this time. 
in the third chapter, the first verse, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose. (laughs) And uh, he went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And then proceeded the most singular series of events that the world has ever seen, perhaps. To appreciate this, we'd have to appreciate what Nineveh was. Nineveh was the New York of the world. Nineveh was uh, the world's greatest city then. It was bigger than Birmingham. It was surrounded by a wall 100 feet high, with 1,500 towers on that wall 200 feet high. The wall was so broad that three chariots could drive abreast on this wall. The population was perhaps the size of Birmingham. Nineveh was the rising and the up-and-coming power of the day. And through the streets, through the gates, and down the streets of that city came this prophet, this famous prophet. His hair flying, his eyes blazing in one message. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And the people listened. And from the king down to the lowest beggar, they humbled themselves. And they put on sackcloth. And they fasted. And they even made the animals fast. And they cried out to God to spare their city. Why? Why? They believed. They believed the word of this prophet. They were like Noah. There was no evidence. What on the horizon could possibly touch them? There was no other nation that threatened them. They were like Noah who prepared an ark when there was no visible evidence of rain simply at the word of God. By faith Noah did this, and by faith in the word of God's prophet which is always the thing that God listens to and God attunes to and God blesses. When a man responds in faith to God's word, this is the step of salvation. Repentance and faith. They turned. They were smitten with their wickedness. Let us repent of our evil, they said. And they believed. This is the key of salvation of a nation, in a sense, but particularly of an individual, we are told all the way through Scripture, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept the message of the prophets about him. Thou shalt be saved. Put your trust in him as your Savior, as the one who died for you. Submit your will in honest repentance. Turn from your evil. Here is salvation. God listened, and God averted his judgment. He did not do what he had said he would do in terms of judgment. It sounded like a message of judgment, didn't it? Yet forty days, none of us shall be destroyed. But really, a message of grace. All the warnings of God are really messages of grace. To lead us to turn, t'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. You notice that he did set a deadline, forty days. He gave time. And yet there was a deadline. And so it is with the individual life. God has a deadline. There is a, li- there is a time 
by us <clears throat> unknown that God has set on every path. There's a hidden, hidden line between God's patience and his wrath. To cross that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It may not quench the beaming eye, it may not pale the beaming eye, nor quench the glowing hell. Yet nonetheless, to cross that limit, that line between God's patience and his wrath, is to die. God has a day of grace, and an individual can go past it, and a people can go past it, and a church can go past it, a denomination can go past it. Israel went past it, and the door was shut. Then we find Jonah running ahead. When he ran with God, look at the power he had. A whole nation, a million people, turned in three days of preaching. But now he begins to run ahead of God. While heaven is rejoicing, they rejoice at one sinner that repents. What about this great city in repentance? While the angels in heaven are rejoicing, Jonah is angry. Jonah is upset with the results of his preaching. Why? We pick it up in the fourth chapter, in the first verse. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord, and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Isn't this exactly what I said when the message first came to me to go to Nineveh? Therefore I fled before unto Tarsus, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. That's why I didn't want to come to begin with. I knew this is what would happen. All those sinners would repent, and then you wouldn't wipe them out. And he's very angry and very upset. To understand why, it's not that Jonah's mean. It was out of patriotism. We need to appreciate the world situation. Uh, as we said, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was the coming power, a ruthless, militant power that was reaching out to conquer the world, that was threatening the land of Israel. And Jonah, fearful for his nation's welfare, knowing the awfulness of their atrocities, they were the Nazis of the day. They were the communists of the day in their, in their terrorism and in their tactics. When they would take a city, we, we find this from every stone that's unturned in this area in archaeological research. They would rip out the tongue with the hand of their enemies. They would impale them on stakes and leave them in the sun. They would make mounds of their skulls to terrify other, other nations and other towns. They would burn their children. They were a terrible people. And out of love for his own country, Jonah wanted this nation destroyed and this people destroyed. And the word comes, their cup is full. I'm going to destroy them, but I want you to go warn them first. And he says, no, I will not warn them. And then God will destroy them. And my nation will be saved. And I would rather risk the judgment of God upon myself and save my nation. There's a sense. It was out of patriotism. What do we have here? In a sense, we have religion in the service of politics to some extent. 
a very worthy cause and yet a wrong cause. God must be even ahead of love to country, love to family, God first. So Jonah's angry, and God condescends to reason with Jonah. Jonah, doest thou well to be angry? Jonah says, yes, yes. And he goes out and he, hoping against hope, he builds him a little booth up on the hill overlooking the city there, and he watches. Go on, God. Smite him. Hit him. Lightning. <laughs> day after day. And now God begins to teach Jonah an object lesson. As he leads Jonah into sympathy with himself and show him how he feels. To show, show Jonah how as the Lord who made man, how his heart is entwined around man, how he feels pity for man, even as awful as man is, still he's God's creature. And his, his heart's entwined around him, and he doesn't want to have to punish. He doesn't desire that any should perish. God, we read, prepared a leafy plant, a gourd, a leafy plant that came up over Jonah's head and protected him from the hot sun there. And it said that Jonah really loved that plant. And then it says God prepared a worm. And the worm came and devoured the roots of the plant so that the gourd withered and died. And then God prepared a hot east wind which blew, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. And Jonah got madder and madder, and he said, Just kill me! I want to die! And then God brought home the object lesson. He said, Jonah, thou hast had pity on the gourd. Your heart became entwined around it, and you are grieved that it's been taken away. For which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, it was just a transient thing. You didn't plant it. You didn't cause it to grow. You didn't labor over it. You didn't fertilize it. And yet, notice how your heart became entwined around it and how you're grieved about it. Now, what about me, Jonah? What about the people here in that city? They are my creatures. I made them. And my heart's entwined, and I don't want to have to destroy them. And they're not a transient thing like the, like the gourd. Should it not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern from their right hand and their left little children? That many little children, 120,000 little children, who cannot discern their right hand from their left. Jonah... Don't you understand how I feel now? If you can feel that strongly about a gourd, what about the way I feel about the people in that city? Are you running from God? Best run to God. Best repent. You know, there's a thousand applications of this story, but it seems to me that 
One tremendous application is in our attitude toward the unsaved and our feelings about them, about world missions, about home missions, about evangelism. Jonah was a, was a fundamentalist. Jonah believed that God would punish unless men repented, that there was a judgment day coming. He believed that if men were preached to, they'd repent, that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believed. And there are thousands of fundamentalists today who are a lot like Jonah. We believe these things too. We believe unless men hear, they will perish. And if they hear, quite a number would turn and believe and be saved and judgment would be averted. And yet we have to be dragged to Nineveh. We sit in our little booth on the sidelines. We thank God for the comforts of life. But we refuse to go to Nineveh. How can we so easily let Nineveh perish? Why can we? Because we're not one with God in his pity towards those who are perishing. Someone's written a poem that is one of the most terrible things I've ever read in this, along this line. Jonah built a little booth, a shelter from the heat. A gourd vine grew protection from the wind that on him beat. Jonah rejoiced, exceeding glad, for this convenient gourd, especially since this comfort was provided by the Lord. I thank thee, Lord, thou hast been good to my dear wife and me. We're glad we're in a peaceful land of great prosperity. It makes us feel so good, this little bungalow, the kitchenette, the living room, the rug, so soft, you know. We love our children, everyone. We keep them home for God. The homeland needs them just as much as mission fields abroad. And fundamentalists we are, my children, wife, and I, so thankful that we're saved by grace, secure until we die. What did I say? Old Nineveh? Well, that's another thing. Right now we want to praise our God. We're sheltered neath his wing. Thus fundamental Jonah's two. The Lord their praises tell. They'll sing we're saved and sanctified till Nineveh goes to hell. Another obvious application is just in general in our life. Is there anything in which I'm like Jonah, unreconciled to the will of God? If so... God may be forced to teach me the lesson he had to teach Jonah. And I suppose that my gourd grows in many a different form. Perhaps my gourd grows in the shape of a little golden-headed girl, blue eyes, lilting voice. Perhaps that's the shape my gourd takes and my heart twines around. I heard the same preacher that wept so. Tell of how his heart was twined around his little girl. She was the object that he labored for. She was the one he sought to make money for that he might provide her with all the niceties of life. She was the reason he resisted God's call already. And the day came when when he'd moved to Huntsville and he sat there with his wife one night, the little girl playing before them, suddenly turned and there was a Bible on the table there. 
She took out her pencil and she did as a child will do. She turned a page of the Bible and then she scribbled in the Bible like you would sharpen the edge of your pencil. And then she scribbled on the opposite page. He was horrified. He got all over about it. The next day she went to school and he was standing in the yard when the bus was bringing her home. He had his back to the bus and he was waiting for his little girl to jump on his back when instead two other little girls came around and said, the bus has run over your daughter. He rushed down and there was only a pool of blood. She was on her way to the hospital by a taxi that had passed by. He chased the taxi down, jumped inside. When they reached the hospital, he picked up his little girl, ran in, put her on the bed there and called the doctors but she was dead. He asked everyone to leave the room. And he picked her up in his arms and he turned his eyes to God. He said, God, don't whip me anymore. I'll preach. The next night, that night, his preacher came over and he told how he'd criticized his little girl just the day before for scribbling in the Bible. The preacher picked up the Bible and said, Did you see what she marked? And he read from Matthew 6 about, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves bake through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. And then on the other, other page she had underlined, For where your heart is, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's make sure we're in the will of God. So much better to do it His way and do it at the first call. Whatever we're resisting in. Maybe you're resisting in coming to Christ. Maybe you're resisting in heeding His call to be a missionary or a preacher or to go to someone. Whatever you're resisting His will in, let's yield. God does not willingly afflict. Let's share his pity for the lost.